Reading of God's Word comes from Proverbs chapter 10. Continuing our time in the book of Proverbs. We'll read chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. This is God's Word. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. The wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. The echoes even of what we considered this morning in verse 12, the loveliness of love covering an offense, which is a spirit which is contrary to that exacting spirit of eye for an eye. And the loveliness here for children in verse 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. Children, you probably receive a lot of instruction these days. When I was young and now that I am old, it is still difficult for me to receive instruction sometimes. But the Lord here is plain. Instruction is a blessing, and heeding it leads unto life. Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of his word. God, how wonderful that you have spoken. How wonderful that you have made yourself known. How wonderful that it is not only a word of judgment, but a word of mercy and grace which comes unto sinners. How excellent are your words, O Lord, they are so precious, more precious than silver, sweeter than honey. Teach us, Lord, to... Devour your word, that it may dwell richly in us. We give you thanks for the incarnate word. The choicest, most excellent revelation of who you are. We pray that above all we would see our king and to receive from his bounty. For we ask in his name. Amen. Sermon text comes from Exodus chapter 20. Continuing on in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We come to the sequence of questions on the fourth commandment beginning in question 57. And going down to question 62. And take these over the next couple Lord's Days. Question 57 is, God's word 
from the fourth commandment, and so I'll read Exodus 28 through 11, and then I'll turn to the catechism. This is God's word. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Question 58 asks, what is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven to be a holy Sabbath to himself. Then question 59, which day of the seven hath God appointed to be the weekly Sabbath? From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath, and the first day of the week ever since, to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. Children, what's your favorite holiday? I always went back and forth as a kid. I loved Thanksgiving. I don't know why. I, I just loved Thanksgiving. Fourth of July was wonderful. Holidays bring uh, all sorts of refreshment to them. I've never met a child who doesn't like holidays, doesn't have a favorite holiday. Uh, one of the best parts of um, Holidays, when you're older, unless you're a pastor, in which case most holidays fall on Monday and it's your day off anyway, <laughs> is you get to take the day off of work. <laughs> you get to rest from your work. You have license. You have uh, liberty. You have invitation. You have freedom to put aside uh, your labors, the labors which occupy so much of your time and your energy and your um, mental expenditures. You put them aside, and it's a load off, as it were. I can remember this vividly in seminary. Near the end of the first semester, you were gearing up for papers and exams, and then Thanksgiving would come, like, right at the end there. It was like everything was due, and then it was Thanksgiving. But it was so refreshing to be able to just put it all out of mind for that one day and to feel completely right to do so. Have you experienced that refreshment with the holiday? You don't have to think about it. You can put it aside. You're welcome to do that. That's a gift, is it not? It's unfortunate, I think, that our conversations about the Sabbath have lost something of their festal ring. I don't know how often you associate the term Sabbath 
and feast. But that certainly would have been one of the most consistent associations with Israel of old. I think the Heidelberg Catechism uses the term festal in it. There's something wonderful about rest. What sits at the heart of the Sabbath is this idea of rest. God rested from his work. He called us to rest in imitation of him. Here we pick up the doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. We're kind of a ragtag bunch here. Say that with affection. Coming from different backgrounds, different traditions. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the idea of there remaining a Sabbath. Most people probably think the Sabbath was something of old, something that was done during the time of Israel. Something that has no further bearing, put aside, like circumcision was put aside, like the temple was put aside, like the rites and the rituals of purifications was put aside, so also the Sabbath was put aside. One of the first ways that the Reformed fathers and the tradition would address that is by drawing attention to the fact that we're in the Ten Commandments. Certainly we haven't put aside the commandment not to commit adultery. We haven't put aside the commandment to not bear false witness. Reformed faith takes as its starting point the fact that there's something abiding about the Ten Commandments. There's something perpetual about the Ten Commandments. And this observation prepares us to receive that which abides, that which remains in the Fourth Commandment. We would no more expect the Fourth Commandment to be disregarded and cast off than the First or the Second or the Fifth. To me, that stands to reason. Does that seem objectionable to anybody? That, let's say, passes the sniff test. They go on from there, and you heard it in our passage from Exodus 20. It's not just that the Sabbath command to identify and keep the one day that God has designated uniquely. They say not only does it appear in the Ten Commandments, but it seems to have quite a heritage to it. This doesn't seem to be something new at Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai was a significant moment in the history of God's people. This was the clarification of who they were. They no longer were slaves in Egypt, now they belonged to the true and living God. They were his kingdom. And as his kingdom, they received his legislation as the true king. But we realize here that this seems to have a backstory. Remember the Sabbath day. What is the Sabbath day? It receives no explanation here. It just assumes that this is something that's known. The Sabbath day. The day of rest. 
This isn't something new that's introduced to Israel. This is something that's refreshed for Israel, which Moses says goes back to creation. The Reformed faith has always made the argument that the command to guard and to keep the Sabbath is not only established in the fact that it comes to us in the Ten Commandments, which we understand to be a summary of God's moral law, but it also goes back to the very beginning. Creation itself. So you read in Genesis 2, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You hear a lot of the same language there. Blessed the Sabbath day. He made it holy. Cease from labors. Much of what says forth in Exodus 20 is found in Genesis 2. Now it's true we do not get in Genesis 2 the command to keep the Sabbath. But what do we get? What does it say? God blessed the seventh day. But blessed it for who? Up until this point in the narrative, God has blessed creation. And he pronounces his blessing for his creatures. He pronounces his blessing for his creatures. If you're going to look at this and say, well, he did this for himself... You're going to run into the problem of every blessing that he's uttered up until this point has been for his creatures. He blessed them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Here he blesses this day for them. You say the same thing about made it holy. Well, made it holy for whom? <laughs> Consecrated it for whom? Well, certainly for himself, he sets apart all manner of things for himself, but it's never for himself in a vacuum. He consecrates his day, blesses this day for his creatures. So when we come to the Ten Commandments here, we see something that God set in place in the very order of nature. And think how fitting that is. The heavens declare the glory of God. God's goodness, wisdom, power everywhere on display. Every single person has written on their conscience what? That they ought to worship this creator. Worship. Worship. Trust. Adore. And so that, the law of nature itself, would suggest that specific time be given to this. That this is not to be something incidental. That he's so worthy of worship that he's worthy of direct and attentive and undivided worship. That seems abundantly plain from the law of nature. And consider just a moment how good God is not to leave himself without witness. 
This is known by everyone. That he is worthy of worship and that specific time should be given to his worship. You can step back and just survey the pagan kingdoms. They all have their feast days to their gods. They know that the gods are to be served, not accidentally, but specifically, with times given over specifically for worship. It's a faint vestige of that testimony that God has written upon the hearts of all of his creatures. The commandment to honor and to keep the Sabbath was not a merely ceremonial law. If you dive into the Reformed Fathers dealing with this, they'll say, sure, there were ceremonial aspects to it, but at its heart, this is the moral law where God says, worship me, not just as I say, according to my word, but when I say, according to my word. That's what's brought out, isn't it, in question 58? We keep holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word. God gets to tell what time it is. (laughs) God gives us time. This is true at every level of that statement. You read Acts 17. He has placed everyone in the particular time that they exist. You'll hear the hypothetical question, when would you have liked to have been born? When would you have liked to have lived? It's an impious question. It's not really. (laughs) But the fact that God has determined in his infinite wisdom that we should be born, not just here, but now. That's from the Lord. Not only that, we learn that there's times and there's seasons, everything according to God's design. This is a magnificent passage from Ecclesiastes 3. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Who determines those times? It's not the heavenly bodies. That's what the pagans thought, wasn't it? That according to the movement of the astral bodies, so were the times on earth. And they got it half right. But the astral bodies are put in place to prompt us to consider the heaven of heavens. The one who truly determines the time. It's not the sun. Though you get why they thought that. (laughs) It's not the moon. Though you get why they thought that. Genesis 1 says that the sun and the moon are governors appointed by God to tell the time. You can think about how determinative the sun and the moon are. 
We know it. We all just came out of hiding from a very long winter. It's determinative for us. Moms get cranky. Dads get irritable. Why? Because we've been stuck inside all winter. But it's not the moon or the sun, ultimately. It's not the distance from the moon or the sun, ultimately. And so our grumbling is not ultimately against those things. It's against God who sets the time. You feel how rhythmic His creation is. Try to sow during harvest time. Try to reap during sowing time. We have some farmers now. They can tell you that that probably won't work. There's a sense in which the rhythm that God has embedded into creation is our call to adhere to our creaturely position. To submit to His times. We have a problem with that, don't we? What's at the heart of our problem with that is, well, we would be gods. Again and again and again. The Lord gives times. He determines when we are. He determines the seasons at the strict level, winter, summer, spring, fall, harvest, sowing. But even beyond that, seasons of much, seasons of little, it's from his hand. Green pastures, still waters from his hand. Valley of the shadow of death from his hand. Those are the times and the seasons. He sets those times. He is the Lord. It is his prerogative. Once upon a time, the church would be encouraged to reflect upon God's providential dealings in the various seasons that attend a life. You're being brought low? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord. There's no mechanistic, you've done this, so you're getting this. It's simply read the sign of the times. Humble yourself. Season of much, rejoice. Take no confidence in the much that you've been given, but rejoice. There's a time to sing. There's a time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. We've mentioned the obtuseness of the generation that Jesus saw around him. He says, you don't even know how to tell the time. John came, funeral dirge. You didn't know what to do. The son of man came, festal song. You didn't know what to do. <laughs> what am I supposed to liken you unto? God gives the times. We submit to the time. But also he gives the time to work. Did you hear that? Six days you shall labor. That's very generous of him. Think about that. From at least one angle, we consider he's very liberal in the creative opportunities that he gives us to pursue our lawful callings. Is that a valid sense of that? He could have taken all seven. He could have said, you can't do anything. You just got to sit contemplating. Now, on the one hand, maybe that would be a blessing, but on the other hand, you're not very good at it. <laughs> so maybe it wouldn't be. No, he says, 
My blessing attends the six in a different way. As you labor, you're doing so according to God's design. He gives us time for our work. Let's pause there and lament. Because we overwork, don't we? We overwork because we find our identity in our work. Because we're not content with finding our identity in Christ. Any number of social commentators these days have remarked on our favorite phrase, I'm just so very busy. We work, we work, we work, we work. The Lord has said there's a limit to your work, and that's good. There's a sense in which the worship of God requires an acknowledgement at this most basic level of our creatureliness. There's a sense in which our worship of the true and living God on the Sabbath requires trust. That was the episode in Exodus 16, wasn't it? Incidentally, it's another indication that it seems that the Sabbath has a history prior to Sinai. God is giving them manna from heaven, but what does he tell them about the sixth day? He says, I'm going to give you a double portion so you don't have to gather and prepare on the seventh day. You've got to trust me. It's not coming. What does he find? People gathering on the seventh day. Why? Because we don't trust him. If I don't work on Sunday, I'm not be making that money. I'm not making ahead. Somebody else is out there hustling. I'm not. They're getting ahead. We labor by faith. And we labor as those whose hope is not tied to the productivity of this world. And the Sabbath refreshes us with that. It gives us time in general. He determines the seasons, gives us time to work, and he gives us time to worship. He says, this day's mine. We're like, well, all the days are yours. Not like this one. The whole earth was his, but Eden was special. All the peoples were his, but Israel was special. All of Israel was special, but the temple was uniquely special. The whole temple was special, but the Holy of Holies was special upon special upon special. I think it's the third tier. <laughs> he designates space, and he designates time to be special. We've lost that sense of sacred time, I think. We have it in our sort of common parlance. We know special times. A man's wedding day is not just another Saturday. Or the weightier side. A funeral is not just another day. Both of those have a certain weight. That even as wonky as things have gotten, people continue to recognize Oh, perhaps they're not optimally arranged to understand it. They still mark it. They still see it. So we have this conceptual currency that something can be special. It's not like the other days. And that whiffs of the holy, that whiffs of sacred. The Lord says, this day 
is special. It's sacred. From the very beginning, he gave it as a gift to his creation, such that they would not be without perpetual testimony that the world belonged to God and that we were made for him. That our blessedness came not by striking out on our own, but by aligning ourselves with heaven. But we know how that first creation went. Don't we? The loveliness of this six to one pattern was to be Adam's pattern. The Lord labored for six days. And then what do we get? Well, he checks his work, as it were. He pronounces it. He sees all that he had made, and he pronounces it is very good. Six days of labor, very good. Enter into delight. We think of rest as cessation of labors, but it's more the delight in the excellence of what has been done. It's far less a complete cessation and much more a different activity altogether. Preparations have been made. It's time to feast. That's rest. The calf has been slaughtered. The wine has been poured. The table has been set. The guests have been gathered. Rest. That's what he did on the seventh day as he surveyed the work of his hand and pronounced very good. It was the very model that Adam was supposed to imitate. Labor. Work. Be fruitful. Multiply. Guard. Keep. And he did work. He worked rebellion. And the word that met him was not very good. It was expel him from my presence. That sign of first creation is still good in terms of remembering the work of creation, remembering that this world is not random. It belongs to the Maker who hasn't cast it off. But the day had to change. And so we see in 59, from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath and the first day of the week ever since. What changed? Why the seventh to the first? From the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, the seventh day is the Sabbath of God. A reminder that man will only enter into rest if he is found to be working according to heaven. Six days of work, you've got to get the pronouncement of very good. So you work to enter rest. And we worked. And we know the work of our hands. It's not rest, it's restlessness. It's not blessing, it's curse. It's not righteousness, it's sin. Except for one. Except for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who came to do his father's work. He worked. His whole life was a labor of love. Even from the very beginning, where was he found by his mother? In his father's house. And what did he say? I must be about my father's work. You're just a boy. And already he's working as the faithful Adam. Already he is working as the better king, laboring to accomplish the Father's will. His whole life yielded in perfect obedience as he healed, as he fed, as he taught, as he prayed. This blessed king worked. And what did the world pronounce upon his work? Very bad. And praise be to God, the world did not have the determinative word on that. For they buried him. And on the third day, the Lord said, No, no, very good. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so it is for the Christian Sabbath, the day of resurrection, the first day of the week, the day that Christ rose from the dead, glimpsed in 1 Corinthians 16, glimpsed in Acts 20, glimpsed at the end of the gospel that something had changed, that creation had given way to new creation. And that just as creation was marked with the sign of the Sabbath, so new creation was marked with the sign of the Christian Sabbath. Day of hope for us as we celebrate the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the rest which He has won for us, but also the yearning, the yearning for his return, for there still remains a Sabbath for the people of God. As much as he has refreshed us with the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, as much as we can enter into his presence with a week's worth of bad work, and yet still receive, I love you. As much as that refreshes us, We are yearning for the day when sin is no more. When the flesh which clings to us will finally be done away with. Are you yearning for that day? That's what we taste of every week here as we worship in truth. But we don't worship in perfection. Not yet. Because we don't see as we ought. Even now, you're probably thinking, when's he going to wrap up? (laughs) Because you're sinners. (laughs) Because we don't see as we ought. Because I'm a sinner and I don't proclaim as I ought. That attends all of our worship now as true as it is, as refreshing as it is. It is still in a mirror dimly. And so as much as this day gives us a true taste of rest... A mouthful of wine 
a hunk of bread. In another sense, it just makes us hungrier. Hungrier for the true feast. The eternal feast. When death will be done away with, sin will be done away with, the heavy hearts that you enter into His presence with, because you have difficulties that are true and known by Him. They'll be done away with. And eternal rest will dawn. Oh, it's true food that we feast on. And it satisfies. But paradoxically, it also keeps us hungry. And it keeps us rightly oriented. Because we know it's a hunger that can't be satisfied by anything in this world that is passing away. But only in the return of the King and the making of all things new. That's our hope. That's His promise. May He continue to refresh us in it week in and week out. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this gift of rest, this gift of the Sabbath. We pray you would refresh us as we taste of it. That you would instill in us a longing for the return of Christ. That you would sustain us through another six days of sojourning, Lord. And bring us back into your presence to taste one, once more of the heavenly riches. Or be pleased to send Christ to return. We ask these things in his name. Amen.